signed in at the front and that you also got a name tag and then you got a folder with today's schedule. There's also a few other things. Um, you guys have a blue one, so I have a yellow one. Uh, my name is Nicole Shepard. I work with Pastor Park um, at Camp Center for the last few years as a project manager for a Minnesota Department of Health funded project on mental health and suicide uh, prevention and reduction in the Korean adoptee community. So our event today is one of the projects that's funded by this grant. So one, thank you all for coming. Um, if you have any questions throughout the day, I can help you. Um, Pastor Park, I'll introduce in just a minute, is right here in the front. Can you wave? I think most people know you, but if you don't, Pastor Park, he's the executive director of the Korean Adoptees Ministry Center. And then um, Andy in the back will wave. Can you wave, Andy? Oh, hi. So Andy's on the board for CAM Center. Yunju Park is support and uh, Pastor Park's wife, and she also helps out, so she'll wave in the back. So you can ask any of us, and then um, Joy is helping us getting coffee here in the back as an intern this summer. Um, so just before we get started, just a couple of housekeeping announcements. So our program goes until 3.30 today. Everything will be in here, all of the sessions. We have planned in 10-minute breaks. Um, we have lunch at 12 o'clock, and then in your blue folder on the left-hand side, you should have a little program. If you open it up, the schedule is on the left. So in just a minute, when I get done, I'll introduce Pastor Park. He'll do a welcome, and then we'll just start our first session with Jay and Karen Grossman. Um, session one, Lost and Found, Finding Peace and Identity Through Faith. We'll have a 10 minute break after that, and then I will share a little bit more about the project that we've been doing the last few years with a presentation on adopting mental health and suicide, and talk a little bit about what the connection is and why we're actually working on this. We'll break for lunch, and all of this will be in here. So there'll be a buffet that'll be set up. I'm told they're gonna open up a space here, but you'll just kind of bring your food back in here. After lunch, we do have another session. So this is the suicide prevention training, and we have Caroline Ludy, who's with the National Alliance on Mental Illness. She'll come and do that. Um, we'll have a number of handouts for that, as well as a certificate of completion. So this prevention training is really about how do you help and support and refer. It's not meant for uh, mental health professionals, but for all of you folks as community members, um, if you're you know, working as either part of your community in a church aspect or leadership aspect, or just, just somebody in the community who either is struggling or has friends or family that are struggling with resources on how to help. Um, and then the last session of the day will be uh, breakout discussions led by myself and then another adoptive therapist, um, Sarah Lentz, who will help. So as I kind of get a sense of the demographics, we'll figure out maybe how to break out. We'll have an opportunity to discuss a little bit more about your own experiences or questions that you might have about mental health, and then we'll come back together to share some of those themes. And then we'll have closing with some more time for sort of questions and answers. Um, in your folder, I do want to point out, so I have this form on the right-hand side. It is an evaluation of the overall program today. 
There are some questions on the green side that have numbers that say before. So just take a minute um, to answer those questions right now at the uh, beginning of our session, and then at the end of the day, you'll rate those again. Does this make sense to you guys? This really helps us to see like what's helpful and effective, and then there's some space at the bottom to also add in some additional information as this is really quick brief. Okay, um, bathrooms are straight outside the door on that wall across the hall. Um, we are gonna be recording the session today and there might be photographs taken. So if anybody would not like their picture used in any of our materials, we'll have you go to the registration desk in the front and just sign your name on this opt-out form. Does that make sense? And then if you don't sign that, we'll just assume that you're okay to use your um, photo. Do you guys have any questions about that? Okay. Um, all right. Well, that's all I have for right now. Uh, next, I'd like to welcome Pastor Park to come and share a little bit more about Camp Center and the work that we're doing. Thank you again for everyone for being here. Good morning. Good morning. How do you feel? Right. Somebody said, why don't you use your church? Do you know why? Many people is say church. I hate church. For example, when I started this one to the, uh, 20 years ago, when I say, let's start Bible study, and 75 people say, no, why no? And they say, adopted. They see some big bee, they ran away, 10 miles away. So you cannot hold anyone. So what do you, do you suggest? How about spiritual discovery? So that's why we put the spiritual discovery as a Bible study. But um, uh, we have an extra chair here, one. It's a Korean Korean way. We have RSVP, I measure 25, but all is Korean is without RSVP they show up. So we welcome. Yes, we used to that one. Anyway, um, I excited this morning, so I called J A five AM. <laughs> Two things. He might be the hard work because in 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 in, in in concert, they have all all schedule, but he has hundred days by his own. Now he's full time. He might be awfully tired. He may not wake up. So I worry about he missed overslept. So I call. Second one, I want to know coming coming down, but he said no no don't worry. I already talked to over two hundred people, so I'm I'm, I'm used to. It. But I, I jokingly, they are all male in, in prison, but you have a bunch of different people you come. I said, don't worry. So also mom is beside uh, him, he might be, it's okay, right? Uh, I'm so excited, do you know why? 20 years ago, he wrote Lost and Found. So do you know where is the Lost and Found word come? 
I read. I, I'm pastor, so I read. <laughs> I read the Luke chapter 15. They are long story, but I just uh, have one verse. Chapter 15, uh, verse 24. Jay, could you read? You are better eye than mine. <laughs> Just 24, verse 24. Chapter 15, yeah, 24 here. Prince is really small. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you are same as mine? Or yes. he, he's not 20 years old anymore? <laughs> For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. So we began to celebrate. He skipped. He was dead in front. So he thought one of that. He skipped that one. But the in front of one which he read, he was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. Now he was found. That is J. Also, mom, the last 20 years. When I, whenever I visit him the last 20 years, one month, monthly or bi-monthly, he always says, my mom came last week. Always. Thank you, mom. You are very faithful, loving, caring, Jesus love mom. The last 20 years. It's not easy. He's not a nice guy. He's very rebellious, very heartbroken. And mom will share. You, you, you honestly share bad things, what his childhood, as much as you can. That's the way he can, he can, he can spotlight that one. I heard many bad things what he told me. I won't share, but uh, well. But long story short, he was a dad. Now he was alive. He was lost. Now he's found. There are many people like in the Bible. I hope Jay is second Joseph, second Daniel in Bible. He's 27 years in custody, 20 years in training. It's longer than Joseph. Joseph is not uh, 20 years. But uh, he trained 20 years. Where is Les? Stand up, please. Stand up? Yeah, please stand up. <laughs> he is a mentor, prison fellowship, oversee him every week. Where is Tom? Has Tom didn't come? No. Another pastor, prison fellowship, because he is the uh, one of the best uh, students in prison fellowship. <laughs> so there are a lot of surrounding training. And uh, I hope he can be next Korean Joseph in this country, second highest man in this country someday. And his speaking, his writing will be touching many people's heart. I've been there, done there. That is purpose over here. He's a star, will be star soon with his mom. You live longer like a John McCain's mother. You know, she's 107 years old. When she was over nine years old, went to London. 
tried to rent a car, they didn't allow her because of too old. You know what she did? She bought car. <laughs> just like her. She's just like her. She's a bike skiing. Now, I didn't ask you your, your age, but the 107 years are guaranteed. <laughs> so leave, you have a next 30 or 40 more years. So this is a good start. Give him big applause. Could you come up for it? This is one microphone wireless. Don't fight. So share. So who will speak first? Ma or Jay? It's all yours. Yeah. Thank you all for coming today. Um, first off, I do need to apologize because after I'm done speaking, I have another engagement in South Minneapolis. So I'll be leaving to go down there and support other men transitioning out of prison and to be able to share with them as well. And then I'll be back in the afternoon about 2 o'clock. So happy this lunch with you guys. And I do have to say that I feel honored to be here today. I can think of many other individuals who have just as amazing testimonies as myself be able to share and to give back and uh, I did not expect to be doing this but uh, a little over three months after being released from prison it's my joy and pleasure to be here today to be able to share with everybody and I'd also like to introduce my mother this is Karen without the love and support of my mom family and my friends over the years um, I don't think that I'd be able to be in the position that I am today so thank you just let me introduce myself. My name is Jay, and I do have to say that being here in front of an audience is giving my testimony is not my most natural ability. Uh, as Pastor Park had said, I have given testimonies before and shared. Uh, the largest crowd was in a bunch of approximately 200, 250 men in prison. Don't know how exactly they enjoyed it, but they couldn't leave, so <laughs> it was a captive audience. <laughs> So if anxiety kicks in and things start going bad, I'm just going to revert back to my natural comfort zone abilities of eating pizza and taking a nap. <laughs> so with that, uh, a little bit about myself. I, I grew up mostly in rural Minnesota. As a young adult, I lived in the suburbs of downtown Minneapolis and St. Paul. And I like to say my uh, childhood was generally happy and, and good going. I'm fourth in the line of five siblings, and I'm the only adoptee. I engaged socially with others in school. I enjoyed going there to be around others. And uh, it was definitely not because of the homework that we got. So, as a typical product of the teenage social environment at that time, in the 80s, I had long hair, wore the jean jacket, and, and listened to rock. I was a little crazy as well, did a lot of uh, self-destructive behaviors. Uh, one of the crazy things I did was I kind of pierced my own ear with uh, numbing it with an ice cube and sticking with a safety pin. Probably wasn't the most hygienic thing to do at that time, but that was just kind of an example of things I did. Some of my friends knew my family's social and financial status due to the name recognition with our family business. They would always ask me what it was like growing up in the family household. I would say, I don't know. What, what is it like growing up in your family household? 
I would sometimes joke with them and tell them I was the Korean male version of the Cinderella story. <laughs> My family always heard about the good Korean Asian laundry services, so they adopted me. And then I would joke and say that I was the one in the house cleaning, doing chores, mowing grass. <laughs> other other white biological siblings were all running around playing. It was a tragic story. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> so, in reality, my family wasn't perfect, but it wasn't completely dysfunctional as well. My family has a strong moral compass. As parents raising a family, my mother and father did the best they could with what they knew how to do. There's no perfect instruction manual for raising a child, let alone an adoptee. They did the best they could with the information and skills they had at the time. On the other hand, despite the face that I put on socially with a smile and the regular response, I'm doing okay. I was having difficulty with teasing, bullying, identity, fear of rejection, and abandonment. I had poor cognitive, emotional, and behavioral coping skills. Internally, I was a mess. I was confused about who I was and where I came from. I hated the question, where are you from? Do you know your culture? Do you know your history? Many times, I would tell them answers that I knew about Korea. Other times, I would just kind of lie my way through the story, hoping to save face and give the best response I could. I truly was an individual with a thousand faces, but none of them was truly mine. There was also another side of my youth as a young adult as well. That was the antisocial, the criminal, and the dark side. I was a risk taker, and I didn't think about boundaries or privacy. I was self-centered, I lived a dishonest, disrespectful, and irresponsible lifestyle. I was aloof to the harm and the impact that I was having in other people's lives. To put it simply, I lacked empathy. I did not know how to think about other people. I did what I wanted to do, not caring what others thought about social responsibility. This led to numerous run-ins with the law, and as youth, I was arrested multiple times for fifth-degree assault, theft, breaking into a neighbor's house. And this did not even include the non-charged offenses of theft, damage to property, burglary, and eluding police. I abused illegal drugs as well. It was mostly marijuana, but I did drugs of all kinds. Some of them had short-term uses and others lasted for longer periods of time. The drugs and alcohol were my passport to acceptance. In the drug subculture, all you need to have is drugs. That's the only qualification. If you have access to drugs or money, others will accept you. I also consider drugs my emotional band-aid. That numbed the emotions that I did not want to feel. It drowned it out the thoughts that I did not want to think about. And it created an escaped reality that I did not want to face the truth about my life. The truth was, I was hurting from the inside. I did not know how to express my pain from teasing and bullying. I was hurting and I was sad. But I did not know how to set boundaries for others and tell them to stop teasing or stop hurting me. Many times I would sacrifice my own health, safety, and welfare just to quote unquote, 
prove that I was able to be accepted, that I was worth being accepted among other peers. I was more focused on being liked than to realize that others were laughing at me and not with me. As a young adult, I had maladaptive behaviors and negative thinking that continued to fuel my insecurity and uncertainty about life. With unchecked entitlement issues, I committed crimes, and I was in and out of jail for short periods of time. I also went to prison for a short sentence back in the early 90s. Out of my mouth, I'd always tell people I'm never going back. But internally, I was thinking other things. I was falling further and further away from the healthy social support and falling further into the criminal lifestyle. At one time, I became homeless. I lived on the streets and in the shelters of St. Paul. I never wanted to admit myself or others just how far into depression I was. I continued to put on that happy face. I'm doing okay and I'm gonna make it. But in reality, I wasn't living, I was just surviving. I was just trying to survive for another day. I was alienated from my family and most people that could help me in my life. I was alone, I was distraught, and I was depressed. I thought regularly about suicide, and then I made an attempt at it. In December, middle of December, I sat along the Mississippi River in St. Paul. I was drinking, I became heavily intoxicated, and I thought to myself, you know, quick prayer to God, Lord, just let me go peacefully into the night. I passed out from intoxication, hoping to die from hypothermia. For whatever reasons, I didn't succeed. I didn't even get frostbite from exposure to the severe cold for that long period of time. I woke up confused, and I returned to Minneapolis the next day. In time, I slowly got back on my feet, working again, but I was living without hope. I never dealt with my emotional and psychological pain that was in my life. So the achievements in work and promotions were continually outweighed by the peripheral issues of my life, such as drugs, poor decision-making, and continued risky behavior. My hurt turned into frustration, anger, then rage. I was mad at the world and everybody in it. I blamed everybody but myself for my failures. In November of 1998, I made a poor choice in life that I'm not very proud of. To make a long story short and not to relitigate the offense, I committed a crime and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. In Minnesota, a person serves two-thirds of their time incarcerated and one-third of their sentence on supervised release, or otherwise known as parole. So prior to that, in November of 1998, while awaiting trial, I went into a deep depression once again. I was alienated from my family and had no one to lean on for support. I had burned all the bridges in my life because I had tried wolf one too many times. And anyone that knew me probably didn't want to come to my aid, so I thought. Day after day and night after night, I would lay into bed in my cell. I'd stare at the walls and have let the suicide thoughts ruminate through my head once again. 
I did not know what to do or who to call. Everything that I owned was in an apartment that I was never going back to. I knew that I was going to be incarcerated for a long time. I had made my bed of crime and punishment, and now I was sleeping in it. For some reason, I decided to write a Korean church for a Bible. I thought this was my last shot at manipulating others or just getting something for personal gain. Why I decided to write the Korean church, I'm not sure. I could have easily asked the chaplain at the religious service center in the jail. They have hundreds of Bibles for free. But yet, something inspired me and to write the Korean church. More months had passed, and then one day I was called to the interview room. I thought it was just another attorney, an investigator, or court services wanting to interview me prior to my trial. To my surprise, it was an elder from the Korean, past, Korean church. We had our first spiritual council session. And on, and on April 11th, 1999, I was presented the Bible that I was re requested many months earlier that I had totally forgot about. The spiritual counseling session had created a new spark for life. I didn't instantly do a 180 degree turn, but there was a new light shining in my dark life. I slowly began to read the Bible. <coughs> I recognized many of the stories from childhood Sunday school, but I did not know how to understand them in a biblical sense. But I came to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter three. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. For some reason, this was part of the answer that I was looking for. Answers to the question, why? Why me? And why now? And why this? I guess this was my season. And as seasons change, so can I. Once I arrived in prison, I put the Bible down and began giving my own life again. I wanted to be back in the driver's seat. My internal log told me, God doesn't know how to live in prison. My pastor doesn't know how to live in prison. But I do, because I've been there before. I was thinking, this thinking kept me in and out of segregation for the better part of the first six years. During these years, I did continue with my spiritual counsel, but it hadn't fully settled in yet. And one day in December of 2005, I was sitting in segregation for assaulting another inmate. I thought to myself about everything that was being told in my spiritual counseling sessions and I, how I needed to let God be back in the driver's seat. So I prayed. I prayed and I asked God for help. I asked him, Lord, I cannot do this anymore. I cannot live my life this way anymore. I need your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness. And I need your light to lead me. From that day forward, I had a different attitude, a different walk, and a different outlook on life. I had hope. I wanted to learn why I made the decisions in life that I had made. So I returned to college and earned my bachelor's degree in psychology. I took a look at my life and realized for the most part that it came down to my thinking. How my thoughts led me to make the behavioral decisions in life that I chose to do. I told myself, if I can change my thinking, I 
again, I can change my life. I worked hard at replacing the broken message that I had in my head. I began to rewrite the internal dialogue that I had with myself every day. Instead of being mad at the world and blaming, I took accountability and accepted it was my choice of thinking and my behaviors that put me in this place. Not the police, not the judge, or not outside influences. Instead of always seeking approval from everyone else, I accept that there will always be people that won't accept me no matter what I say or what I do. I also continue to develop my faith in my relationship with God. So not only was I having conversations with myself, but I was also devoting time for prayer with the Lord and reflection. <clears throat> now life didn't just become peaches and cream and become positive change. I still had struggles and daily challenges. It is, of course, prison. So if you ever wind up in prison, let me give you this piece of advice. Don't drop the soap in the shower. <laughs> Just let it go. It's gone. So now I had to think back about the stories from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There was a time for everything. I think about that time that I spent in prison, the challenges that I had, and the timing of everything in my life. I don't have the answers to them all, but I do know that God had a plan. I believe with faith, hope, and love, many obstacles in life can be overcome. So what does my story of faith and hope have to do with the topic of the mental illness and suicide prevention that we're here talking about today? Treatment and prevention is a multifaceted approach. Not all pathways have the same success. For me, success was not only found with the cognitive approach, but it was found with a faith-based component as well. Through faith, I discovered hope. And isn't that all what we're trying to figure out? How not to lose hope in our own lives and others with what they may be going through with depression or other mental illnesses? So there's a story that I have. There's a Korean adoptee that I met named Jay. I met him while I was in the prison system. His family was from Illinois, and his parents had kicked him out. They didn't want anything to do with him. They gave up hope. He joined a traveling carnival, and he wound up in Duluth, Minnesota. He had committed a crime and wound up in the Minnesota Department of Corrections, where I had met him. I tried to get him involved in spiritual counseling with the pastor, Pastor Park, where I had found success. Unfortunately, he did not find success. He stopped going to spiritual counseling. After he was released, he wound up getting in trouble again in Wisconsin and went to the Wisconsin Department of Corrections. There, he ended up committing suicide. And I can't help but think of myself, what happened if his parents never gave up hope? What if they continue to have faith and continue to reach out to him during his time in prison when he was all alone and nobody else was there. So to wrap things up, yeah, I like to use a lot of sports analogies. They're always great. Think back a couple of years ago when the Minnesota Vikings were in the playoffs against New Orleans Saints and they were down and time was running out. As the crowd began to leave the stadium, 
They gave up. They thought that the team wasn't going to win. But as we know what happened next, Minnesota got the ball back. They threw a, a miraculous pass, and we scored a touchdown. That was known as the Minnesota Miracle. I kept thinking to myself how the fans in the stadium felt. They didn't give up hope. They stayed, and they saw the win. And that situation is no different than any one of us. When we give up faith, we give up hope. We quit. We lose the game. And I almost did. I lost faith, and I hope, and I wanted to end my life on different occasions. But others did not. They kept the faith and the hope alive that someday I would pick myself up and get together life together again. I'm here today because they did not lose hope for me. So don't ever give up hope on somebody. If you think that you know that somebody is having trouble with mental health or behavioral issues, as irritating as difficult as it can be, as long as they are breathing, there is hope. Stay in the game with faith and hope. With my background, it would have been easy for them to give up hope on me, as many people have in my life. And you know what? They're not around here to see the comeback, to see the win. So I thank you. to give pass the mic to my mom and she can kind of share a story of from her point of view and dealing with my craziness and my issues in my life and and the challenges and how she made it through i'm not very good with microphones so <laughs> you can't hear me raise your hand all right breaking news a suspect in the serious crime committed last night has been arrested. Jay Grossman, a 27-year-old man. I heard this while I was driving and I got it confirmed when I went home and listened to the news on the TV. The whole world knew. In many emotions, immediately came over me. First of all was the shock and the thought, this can't be real. It must just be a nightmare, a bad dream. Then there is the shame and the embarrassment for the whole family. I had fear of what was ahead for Jay. I had anger toward him for what he had done. And I also had concern for the victim. Yes, friends were there for me. But it was easy still to feel isolated and vulnerable as they had never had to deal with what I was dealing with at that time. Basically, I felt hopeless helpless and full of despair, at which point I knew only God 
could help me get through it. So turning to Joshua 1, 9, where he says, Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified and discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Next comes the feeling of guilt. As I ask myself, what could I have done differently in raising Jake? Or how and where did I fail him as a mother? The questions go on and on, and there were no answers. Yes, Jay had had several previous encounters with the law, but nothing like this one that gave him 20 years in prison. During that period of time, I had the opportunity, if you want to call it that, of visiting him in seven different DOC facilities. Experiences that I had never imagined would be part of my life. But praise be to God, Jay is now free and given the opportunity for a new life. I'd like to close with a promise from 1 Peter 5.10 that both Jay and I can claim. The God of all grace, who after you have suffered a little while, has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He himself will restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Thank you for listening to our stories this morning. Um, at this time, we can open up for a couple questions and answers if any of you have any at this time. Joan? How did it uh, feel coming out of prison? Were you frightened and overwhelmed? I wasn't necessarily frightened and overwhelmed. Um, the best way to explain the analogy is if somebody goes deep sea diving, it's easy to go down really fast to the depths. Your body adapts to the pressures and the stress of the environment. But coming back up, you have to take that slowly. If you come up too quickly, you develop the bends and they can cause life and, you know, physiologically uh, damaging experience and even death. Coming out of prison was generally the same way. It took time. It wasn't uh, a quick adaptation. I needed that time to just sit there and decompress, to let the stress of prison uh, kind of wash away. Because you really don't realize how much stress you build up from the anxiety, just the environment itself. Because it is a challenging environment. You know, you think of all the idiots that you knew in high school, and then you put them all into one place. <laughs> it's not the most enjoyable place to be, but uh, you can find personal strength. And it does take time. You know, you're not going to try and rush back into work right away. It takes time to adapt. So, with your time in your life now, the 
guess what are you what are you doing to fill that? What are the interests, projects, or whatever passions? Yeah, well, putting together you know nearly five decades of life experience, growing up as an adoptee, having behavioral, emotional challenges, psychological challenges, and even criminal challenges going through the criminal justice system, uh, earning my degree in psychology. With that opportunity, while I was in the Department of Corrections, I had the opportunity to give back to the men in, in prison. I worked as a special needs mentor for men with serious and persistent mental illnesses, people with physical disabilities, and to be able to support them. I also worked as a tutor in the education department to help men get their high school diplomas, get their GEDs. So my personal desire is to continue in that realm, uh, to work generally in nonprofits, to be able to give back, and be able to use my education experience in the speaking engagement environment. Uh, currently, you know, I, I do what I can to share it when I can. But just to continue forward, to move, and to be able to share testimony that no matter what challenges that you have in life, no matter what obstacles, you need to find perseverance and persistence to continue moving forward. I was just curious, you had said um, that there were no answers. And I was just wondering if, if you still feel that way, like looking back, like was there was there anything that you can identify, I guess, that was missing um, in your life or like what changed you that come? Yeah. I think so. Um, just the situation of Jay and the family. He was the fourth of five had a younger brother who was about 13 months younger than him. And um, just that whole kind of thing of maybe not feeling like part of the family when you're the only adoptee. You look different from your brothers and sisters. And even as a parent, I didn't see him that way. But you know, I'm sure others probably did, or I would have the two babies and one in a backpack and one in my arms, and you know, you'd go to the grocery store and people would sort of take a, a double look at you, like, as such. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's like any of us, when we look back, we would probably do things differently. Um, and like Jason did the best that we could do as parents, with our knowledge, with our skill. And at that time, and I think it has changed, there was not quite the support for adoptees. You know, you just adopt a child and everybody thought it was rosy and wonderful. And the first time in one of the publications from the adoption agency, a lady from Kansas wrote and said, you know, we only hear about all the rosy stories. Let me tell you mine. And right away I connected to that woman and I wrote to her and I said, yes. I said, I'm so glad you did that because there are other sides to the story. And you would do things differently and then you think, okay, how might that have turned up? You know, your eyes get smarter 
when you look back. You want to keep going forward. No. I know if that answers it, but you know. Uh, I'm just curious. Did you wrote a book uh, called Lost and Found, correct? That was your book. That you wrote? It wasn't a book. It was when I was in jail in 1999, after I had met Pastor Park. Stephen Winrow from the Korean Quarterly had sent me a Korean Quarterly with the topic of rage. And I had wrote him a short letter, I shouldn't say short, but it was a letter thanking him for the opportunity to present me with that Korean Quarterly newspaper and how I related with the story with rage. And I had titled that letter to the editor, Lost and Found. I wasn't expecting it to be printed in the Korean Quarterly, but yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he shared that with everybody. And, and the part of your file is that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there is Thank the 1999 July summer, summer issue, I guess. Yeah, it was a summer, summer or fall issue, yeah. 1999. Yeah. So it'd be a good idea to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Park has encouraged me to do that numerous times. So. Right. I, I think it's uh, Karen has the foundation, so she might support him full-time writer <laughs> instead of the uh, labor full full color labor job. Just write a book, then maybe you're the good investment return investment. <laughs> in investing in her son once again. <laughs> I think the reason why it's a good idea is because you reflect on your life yeah. and that how that can be used mainly for other people who go through the same struggles. And you, I, I just talked to you about it. You don't know why you're going through that, but maybe God is touching you to help other people. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Introduce yourself uh, whenever you talk. Oh, yeah. My name is Peter Wong. I'm a one of the elder of Korean Presbyterian Church, and I'm also the attending to I heard of your story. And also, uh, I'm also helped out of Father's School, and uh, so that I, I also give my testimony when I go to Father's School, and, and, and I had a difficult childhood, and when I reflect back, and you know, I was always wondering, why did I have so much difficulty when I was young? Mm -hmm. And that's what God, you know, I have a mission, which is God put me in different situations to use you. You don't know at the time why you're going to that. But I, I, as I'm reflecting, keep, keep giving testament, I realize this is how God made me. And God put you in that situation to make you an example and, and give you a testimony to raise God up. I've thought of that many times, you know, as I read through the Bible. And you think of all the different passages that we relate to. And I think of Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, where he has a plan for you. He has a plan for, you know, to give me hope and a future. It also related back to Ecclesiastes where there's a time for everything. You know, a time to laugh, a time to cry, a time to, to plant the seed, a time to reap it. So I didn't always know why things were happening in my life. But as time goes on and, and life moves forward, I find that clarity when I look back and look at all the different events that happened in my life and how God may have had a plan in, in, in these activities going on and, and how they're coming forth. Uh, thank you, Elder Wang. Uh, <clears throat> I encourage him while he was in, in, in incarcerate, keep pushing him to write his uh, uh, testimonies. He's a good writer. As you see, 
1999 Lost and Found in Correct Horology in your file. He's a good writer. Everybody said that's proof. And he said it's diving, you deep deep water down fast and then when you come up, it's a slowly come up, you come up so fast that you die, something like that. Where did you get that scientific uh, <laughs> That exactly. He's, he's not totally free man there. He's uh, released on peril, 30 year sentence. 20 years he served as exemplary incarcerated prisoners. That's why he released. His uh, recrime uh, uh, the index, the test result, 0.6% is almost free, uh, sound, healthy person. But he's on peril last 10 years. So nine years, uh, nine months, he's on peril. If he has anything he commit, he back to prison, stay next 10 years. That's why his mom, Karen, and then Jeannie Kwan over there, Hong Ju is not here, and my wife, uh, Elder Yunju Park, and myself, asking state COSA. Have you ever heard about COSA, C-O-S-A? Yes. Could you raise hands, COSA? Two person, three. COSA means circle of supporting and accountability. So Minnesota has one, but only level two. He's not qualified that, but he need. Does, you might you might need to go to tight circle of COSA, uh, C-O-S-A. Virginia is a pioneer, but actually started in Canada. Uh, we need, he need, and we, we, we got a training from the state, even though we are not qualified to deserve. So we learn something, but all of you, this is not one-time shot, this is a good start. We are all one family, has a group. Encourage him to write a book. Encourage him to do something. But you, one of you, be his friends, be his part of the group, team of supporting and accountability. I don't know, you read my uh, Facebook. The, the, Former President Abraham Lincoln was so depressed. He was suicidal. So his friends, 24 hours, seven days we watch. Later, Abraham Lincoln said, without this friend, this Kosa, circle of a friend, I'm history. So his looks fine, but Nine months, nine years, nine months, he need you. Oh, one more thing. <laughs> he, ha he has to leave 10 to 15 to 10. 
11. And then right after this open question and answer, I invite you all of you to come out, take a group photo behind the stand there, okay? <laughs> if it's okay for you. I, I think I need to wrap it up. Oh, okay. I think you're excited. Uh, Les, you had a question? Uh, Jay, I was just going to ask you, um, the Korean community, yeah, I know you've only been out for three months now, but what role do you see the Korean community playing in your um, I think a lot of that has to do with understanding identity and cultural background. Um, growing up, again, I wasn't immersed or didn't have a lot of influence or involvement within the adoptive Korean community or Korean community, period. So that was a big void in my life. Um, that whole aspect of, of not knowing and, and how do I answer the questions when people would ask me. Again, now that was when I was a teenager and so a lot of those questions were brought up in security issues. As an adult, I'm more comfortable with who I am as an adoptee, as an individual, and have more understanding. But participating with other adoptees in the Korean community starts to fill that void with more understanding of who I am, where I came from, what my background is, and also to be supportive that many people's obstacles or challenges in life may not be similar to my own. They may not be as drastic or as severe, but we all have challenges. And that with perseverance and hope, we can learn to overcome those and find a way through and manage. And that's the support that we have with each other. Um, I just wanna thank you for being so supportive for our son in prison came in at age 23 and the last two, three years you have kind of taken them under your wing and have been so much support and a mentor and I don't know how we would be doing if he hadn't met. Yeah. Thank you. You know, when for you guys, I, I met their son in prison and I looked at him at the age of 25 and the insecurities and uncertainties that I had at that age going into a prison system. Um, for myself, I was already involved in a subculture of, of crime and activity, and I wasn't a gang member, but I associated with a lot of gang members. So I was familiar with that culture uh, a little bit. Um, their son wasn't. So I had the opportunity to kind of befriend him and share with him my journey, my challenges, and the unwritten rules of how to navigate the prison system. Because there's a totally different set of rules of the criminal code of conduct and how you interact within prison system versus society. And uh, no, it was definitely my pleasure to be able to share with him my journey. Um, hopefully he's doing well still. response to one of the questions um, you had mentioned, well, both of you talked about not necessarily, I guess, having people or a space to talk about things as, you know, kind of maybe leading towards some of the things that you're involved in, and then also for you, Karen, to say, <coughs> reading this article about another family that 
didn't have such a rosy experience. Um, how do you think things might have been different if you knew that adoption isn't always so rosy? Because I believe it's the function of the agencies too, right, to try to make it look so nice so that you want to do that, so you want to adopt. And I think Pastor Park and my work with Yunju and getting to know them previous work I did in, in even in Korea there's this kind of fight with how do we be real and then um, I think he would push back I'll speak specifically here I think in Minnesota like can't be an angry adoptee and there's something wrong with you but I think as we're hearing it makes sense that we're going to have a lot of emotions and confusion and anger um, but I guess my question is had you known more rose, less rosy stories, or even for you, Jay, to have space to, in a sense, normalize some of the confusion, how do you think that might have helped you? Make sense, or? Yeah, yeah. Does that question make sense? Well, I think part of it, um, as far as I was concerned, you have an adoptee in your family, and you just sort of, make them part of your family rather than looking at their need to connect with people of their life background. And so I think, you know, at fall we were all on the even playing field, but not really. And I know at one point I asked him, and I don't even know how old you are, if he wanted to go to um, the Korean camp and at that time he was going to the church camp and stuff and you know he said he wasn't interested um, but how I wish at that time I would have known Pastor Carr, would have known more of the involvement with the Korean um, community because I have a feeling that Jay may not have had to go through what he did if there had been those connections early on, to give him support and just to be together with other people that would say, yes, they call me this on the playground. And it's like anything, when you know that other people can relate to if you have a problem, if you have happiness, it's really a support that he didn't have. You know, that's one of the things looking back, you can't undo share with someone else such, so. I think it's the bottom of your questions, I mean the answers and your questions. When Jay, how many of you have familiar Mac, Minnesota adoptee Korean Mac? He was, he was, uh, uh, was invited to Jangoya, Tom Park, there are four or five people when my wife was Catholic charity social worker, there are 25 people call her, I need help. So all content is the same. So why, why, why did you come to my home? So four people came. One of them is John Oya, still here. Um, and then he, 1990s. And <laughs> he invited him. He came in our church. There are 100 people in our church auditorium. He told me he came twice. 
you should prepare an answer. He was cultural <laughs> shock because all Korean. And his father turned all white people, age 25, 24, <coughs> and also all Korean. So he was cultural shock. And he told me, except John Oya, John Oya is so busy, he's in charge of them. No one, no one else no talk. He just been standing in the, in the corner, <laughs> and he discontinued. Would you say, how can I people help you, like a, like a Korean, but an afraid Korean, that, that kind of mentality? Okay, we'll just kind of wrap up the last one. Yes, could, could, could you answer that? Okay. Well, just to finish up to and read back at Nicole's question of, how I felt afraid to express myself. Uh, I think growing up, I was a pretty emotionally expressive child. But with my father, he was very closed and he wasn't very expressive. So I learned to adapt and, and reflect what he did. So I learned not to share. You, you know, men don't share their, their emotions. They don't kind of tell what's going on. You just kind of push through. So I learned to just internalize a lot of the emotional pain and thoughts that I had. And, Again, that turned into, well, if I say something bad or if I share something negative, that could turn into rejection or abandonment. And that brought up feelings that I didn't want to experience. Um, going forward with Pastor Park, again, when I was invited to Minnesota Adoptive Koreans, which was kind of the precursor to CAM, uh, it was a very large you know, group of individuals that was there in the basement. And I was invited. I didn't know what to expect. And... Yeah, and because John, who had invited me, was he was busy, he was active, running around. I was just kind of left there on my own, and that was kind of overwhelming for myself as well. Again, that whole insecurity issue of, of who am I, where do I fit in. Now I'm about around a bunch of adoptees that I've never been around before, and the whole insecurity issues. So, yeah, it was it was an uncomfortable experience at that time, and. I think if there was kind of a mentor or somebody that was kind of assigned, hey, lead me around, hey, this is, this is Jay, this is, you know, Susan, this is John, you know, and, and through that introduction, kind of to be a navigator through that world, I think it would have been a lot more welcoming experience. And then being approached and saying, hey, you want to come up and share your testimony? It's like, I don't know you guys, there's other people here. And so... Yeah, I, I think that would have been a, a, a lot different experience had there been somebody that was kind of navigated as your peer or your buddy to kind of walk you through that in a first-time experience. So with that, uh, thank you guys for your opportunity to uh, listen to my mom's story of how she dealt with my craziness. And, <laughs> and uh, my story is journey of growing up with behavioral emotional issues and then coming through on the other side with a brighter outlook on life and, and a new attitude. Thank you. Okay. You ladies, please stand up. Please come forward. If you want to be a part of a circle of supporting and accountability, come forward.